Welcome to the Get Healthy Tampa Bay podcast, bringing all things health and wellness to the Tampa Bay community. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Reller, board certified family and obesity medicine physician. Please remember, while I am a doctor, I may not be your doctor. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and not medical advice. Please seek out your physician for your specific needs. Here we go. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Get Healthy Tampa Bay podcast. I apologize for my voice today. It's gone. But today we have Dr. Erin Pupetsky, who's going to help me out. She is a board-certified dermatologist. And welcome to the podcast. And why don't you tell us who you are and what you do? Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So I am a board-certified dermatologist. I own several companies. The first is Patriot Dermatology, and it's a mobile dermatology company serving Sarasota area. Outside of Sarasota, I'm mostly telehealth from pretty much all of Florida. And in New Jersey, I have an actual practice where it's called Wellness Dermatology, and I see kids and adults, everything basically that I would do in my mobile practice as well. And I'm looking to launch a national teledermatology practice as well. That's awesome. Man, you are really spread out everywhere. And I think, you know, like you were saying before we got on is that telemedicine, being able to have the access immediately is super important. So that's great that you're starting all these companies. So Dr. Kupetsky, we were going to talk about skin cancer and prevention today. So can you describe to us basically what is skin cancer? So skin cancer is growth that can happen on the skin as a result of DNA damage due to UV light and genetics. And these growths can be dangerous. Some of them can just be limited to the area. Some can go all over the body. And usually they are non-healing ulcers, spots, dark spots, red spots, or wounds. And they often present non-painful, sometimes itching but mostly festering. And these are the ones that need to be closely paid attention to and patients need to be educated about finding these things on their body. Often patients are the first ones to find their own skin cancer. The most common skin cancer types that are sun-induced would be squamous cell carcinoma and basal cell carcinoma. There are other types of skin cancers as well. Melanoma is also another one that has strong genetic predisposition as well as UV damage-induced. Melanoma can be pigmented or not pigmented. So red spots are fair game too with melanoma, potentially. I don't think I was aware that red spots were fair game with melanoma, but those are the three most common types of skin cancer, correct? Most common, yes. Okay. And what are, other than sun protection, are there any other risk factors? You mentioned genetics as well, but any other risk factors? That's a very good question. So being fair-skinned, having lots of short burst or long burst radiation or UV radiation exposure, especially short burst, the quick one where you get 15 minutes of sun exposure all the time, repeated. Like a tanning right? salon? Or? That, that can actually do it too. Tanning salons, right. mostly UVA, which are long wave mm-hmm. lights, and that can predispose you to developing squamous and basal cell cancer. The one where you get intermittent burning, that and some UV B boxes that are used in medical dermatology for certain diseases, those can predispose you to melanoma. Okay. I didn't know the difference between, well, I, first of all, did I know that in a dermatology office, they may be exposing you to treat something else, right? And then having a risk factor for, you know, a different type of cancer. Yes. What? There's actually UVA boxes and UVB boxes. 
When used therapeutically, they can be used to treat certain diseases that are very difficult to treat because they could be all over the body, for example. So there is always that trade-off. No solutions, just trade-offs. <laughs> and I know this is off topic, but can you give me an example of a disease that, that they would be used to treat? Sure. So, for example, psoriasis, you can use UV to treat a condition of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, for example. You can also use certain types of blue light therapy to treat skin conditions like acne. That's not UV light, though, but acne and precancers. Yeah, that was more a little CME for me because I was assuming you were going to say psoriasis or something like that. Also, I know for eczema, sometimes they have some therapy for that, that sometimes when we're trying to do prior authorizations for like Dupixin or something, did you try any like light exposure? But we don't typically do that in our office. So that was more of a question for myself. Anyway, back to our topic. So what do we do to prevent skin cancer then? So preventing skin cancer involves UV light protection. One of the best UV light protections I find is like UPF 60, those tight weave type clothing, sun hats, visors, sun protective clothing from companies like Solumbra, Colabar, and there's plenty of other ones. And not going out during the hours of 10 and 2 or trying not to. Wearing sunscreen, but sunscreen at about an SPF of 30. Really, there's not a lot of indication for more than SPF of 30. You have to wear it every two hours when you're outside for long periods of time or if you're sweating because it's just a screen. It will break through and UV light will come through it. Sun protective clothing, I think, tops it for me because I tell my patients that you can wear a hat and although a hat or a t-shirt is a true SPF of four or five, it's consistent SPF. So that's better than wearing a sunscreen of SPF of 30 and it breaks down during the day and you wind up tanning, which means it got through. As opposed to a hat, nothing gets through or little gets through. Yeah. So you're not saying that you need to wear sunscreen underneath those SPF shirts, right? No, not underneath the shirts typically, but like on your face when you wear a hat and Mm -hmm. around your neck, make sure you get areas that are not covered by clothes. Right. I mean, they get reflective sun too, right? Usually if you're at the beach or from the water or something, even if it's not direct exposure from the light, it's probably reflected back. Exactly. Yeah. Even sun protection for your eyes too is very important. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned 30 and above, but really you're saying 30 for SPF is good enough? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of like SPF 50s, 100s. And honestly, if you sweat it off, it doesn't matter. <laughs> so yeah. it will break down. So at least on 30, 30 or higher. 30 or higher is what we typically tell patients. But yeah. And one thing you didn't mention, but after you get out of the water or you're swimming or something, you should reapply right away. You mentioned sweating, but swimming, like it's pretty much gone after that. So reapplying is really important. You're 100% correct. And when you put it on, you have to make sure you wait to it dries before you go into the water. Absolutely. I think a lot of us forget to do that. The sunscreens, they block UVA and UVB. Yes. So yeah, there's mineral type sunscreens that are titanium dioxide and zinc. And those are physical blocking sunscreens. They just physically block the UV light. The other ones, the chemical blocking sunscreens, oh, and the mineral ones are generally, for as much as they try to micronize it, often it leaves a white cast for some Mm -hmm. people. So it may not be cosmetically appealing for some skin types. But the chemical sunscreens absorb the UV light instead with the chemicals that they put in there. And so that sometimes is the trade-off, but it's more cosmetically appealing. 
So what about the sunscreens that have, I think, it, is it oxybenone that yeah. is like bad for coral reefs or anything like, do you know which one I'm talking about? Yeah, there's some ingredients that are said to disrupt hormones, hormonal mm -hmm. disruptors, and there's also ones that damage coral reefs. I've heard a lot about that. I admittingly don't know much beyond that, the coral reef situation. Don't know like the pathophysiology of how they get damaged, but I would say that for at least for hormonal disruption, if it's between a patient not wearing sunscreen because it has a white cast and wearing sunscreen and they're worried about the hormonal disruption, it, it is probably better to just wear something that they're okay and they feel good in rather than telling them no, well, then don't wear any sunscreen at all because that's generally not the way to go. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely think wearing sunscreen is probably more important than what little or little amount of absorption that they might get. I only mentioned the the oxybenone because I was on a vacation recently and I did say they weren't allowing those kind of sunscreens near the reef or anything like that. And then there was recently, I don't know if it was last year, but there's always these recalls of all the sunscreen. And I don't know if you got a lot of questions that time of year, like, is my sunscreen okay? But there was traces of cancer-causing elements in, and I'm assuming it's also kind of what you're speaking with the hormone disruptors too. Yeah, I believe it was benzone or benzene mm. in those, and there was a huge list of them. Mm -hmm. Luckily, the product line that I promote that I have in my office, it doesn't have that, but there's a bunch of them that don't as well. But there is a very elaborate list in terms of the products that have these in them. So yeah, it leaves the patient the ability to make a better decision in terms of what they want to buy. Tell me about like daily use of sunscreen in like a routine, maybe within the makeup. Yeah, absolutely. So I use personally a tinted sunscreen. I find that tinted sunscreens kind of like check off the boxes for adding some color as well as covering some blemishes, but also provides the sunscreen protection that you need. The tint also, which comes from iron oxide, helps to block out more UVB than without tint alone. So if you can wear some tinted sunscreen, it's actually better for you. I always promote that. I really prefer that over makeup for patients who want to wear their makeup as well. Some makeups that have sun protection in it. And I would definitely favor that over wearing one and then the other, generally because it feels heavy. However you can wear it is fine with me. I'm very flexible as long as patients do it. Often they bring in their own products and they have me check it, read the ingredients, make sure it's okay. As long as it's typically fragrance and oil-free, I'm good. Most of my patients come for medical treatments for inflammatory skin diseases. And so we have to put them on medicines and now the fragrance and the oils inside their products can actually not play well in the sandbox with their medications. So Basically, as long as it's oil and fragrance free, I like tinted if you can do it. And I recommend putting it on several times a day if possible. We also have, and there exists, I just don't alone carry it, but there is a tinted SPF powder. So I sell it part of my product line. So basically it's something you could take during the day and you could put a little of that powder on your T-zone and in the areas of basically your whole face and add more SPF protection, absorb oil, and also give you that shine because it has a lot of mica in it for like glowing. So yeah, that's also recommended too. And I recommend that a lot to patients. I'm very happy to hear that tinted sunscreen is good because that's what I use every day. I use that Elta MD tinted one and that's like my makeup. 
Yeah. Of course, I forgot to put it on today, but I didn't go anywhere. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's great to be able to have that base on there every day. You know, I'm getting exposure driving to work. Even I don't know if fluorescent light does anything, but it I does, feel yeah. protected that I have that on almost every day. And then I didn't know if you had any comment on this, but putting it on kids every day. So the recommendation mm -hmm. is mineral-based sunscreens on children. I would say less than a year, sun protective clothing overall is best than to put any kind of sunscreen on them. But if you're going to go with sunscreen for children or young kids and you're worried about the chemical sunscreens, the mineral-based ones are always the way to go. For example, California Baby has a really good one. It's very, very thick. It's like white, <laughs> pasty. Mm -hmm. It's not micronized. So it's not elegant at all, but it does the job. And sun protective clothing, always preferred. At least a hat for the baby is very important. Any sunburn before the age of 20 can increase your lifetime risk of melanoma. So protecting your children and not letting them get sunburn is very important. So we definitely talked a lot about sunscreen. Are there any other measures of prevention for skin cancer? Seeing your dermatologist once a year. <laughs> Perfect answer. Yeah, absolutely. Some people even see us more than once a year just to have a check, just to look and make sure nothing's growing, especially patients who are worried, put the mind at ease and make sure. Telehealth is also very interesting because you have store and forward methods with telehealth now where patients can take a picture of a spot and send it to be looked at. And of course, when we examine a patient, we're looking at the whole body. We're not just looking at one spot because there might be the one spot that you're taking a picture of, but they may have a thousand moles on their body that look just the same. So you're never looking at someone just in a bubble, but the telehealth has allowed us now to be able to kind of look at spots, even though it's not recommended to do a skin check, but even like check lesions for patients who for example, can't get in right away to your office. You can say, no, that kind of looks okay. Or no, that doesn't look okay. Please make sure you schedule a visit with us next time you're in town. And we go from there. I think besides sunscreen, sun protective clothing, staying out of the sun between 10 and 2, just being smart about not letting yourself get a sunburn or try not to reapply your sunscreen the best you can. If you're in an area of high reflection, like on snow or in a boat on water, you're going to have to be more diligent about the sunscreen more so because of the reflection. It's very, very easy to get sunburned that way, even with snow. And then, of course, seeing your dermatologist is very important. Doing self-checks and self-exams is also really recommended. Patients often find their first skin cancer or their skin cancer before we do. Patients are educated every time I see them to look for changing spots, spots that change symmetry. The border is irregular or bleeds off to one side. The color is irregular. One half is not the same as the other. The spot is changing, the spot's bleeding, the spot's growing. It doesn't necessarily mean it's malignant, but it means that I have to see it. And we teach at every visit patients the ABCDEs, um, self-examination and skin checks. And if they have a family history with any of these or personal history of any kind of skin cancers or just a little bit more vigilant with them, yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> So uh, being in Florida, even though I'm a family doctor, and we obviously see a lot of things and patients ask me a lot of things about their skin, I still really want them to see a dermatologist once a year. Like, I feel like you get the time of the full body check. Usually you're going to get fully undressed in a gown and they will look everything from head to toe, right? So I really do recommend everybody see the dermatologist once a year, especially in Florida. And obviously, if anybody is at a higher risk for whatever genetic predisposition they may have. 
So I totally agree. You mentioned the ABCDE. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that means? Sure. So A is for asymmetry. And we're teaching patients to look at one half of their lesion to see if one half is the same or different than the other. B is for border. Border would have to be nice and round and smooth if it's bleeding off to one side or asymmetric at all, or the border is like not even and smooth, that would be more concerning. The C is for color. And so we're looking for homogeneity throughout the spot. And if there's some multiple colors, that's also a flag. D is for diameter. Not much to that. That's kind of like on the low end of concern in that sense, because spots can be large or small and they can be okay. And E is for evolution. So anything that is changing, brand new black spot out of nowhere. Melanoma was more likely to form on legs in women and on back in men. And it's more likely to form de novo, meaning a brand new black spot out of nowhere rather than within a pre-existing mole. And if they have already a condition where a lot of their moles look really irregular, for example, they may have a condition called dysplastic nevus syndrome, which is where you have more than 200 dysplastic nevi, which are characteristically benign, but that can predispose you to development of melanoma and you have to be on your guard in terms of looking for regularities for that. So patients are told to have their own skin checked, be on the lookout for sunspots or new spots and be checked by a dermatologist at least once a year. And some of these patients who have a ton of moles are even recommended to get serial photography where you go mm-hmm. to a certain location and you're in a very awkward outfit. You're showing all your skin so they can take serial photography. I think Canfield is the company that does that. So I hope I answered your question. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You did. So walk me through if someone comes to you and you do a biopsy of something, right? That's what you would do. Like they have a lesion. Tell me what happens if they have something that you're suspicious of. Sure. Well, if they have a mole or a lesion that I'm suspicious of, depending on the spot, And my concern and what I'm trying to diagnose, it would either be a shave, most likely a shave or shave removal, meaning I remove a good two millimeters of margin of skin around it. In certain cases where I'm concerned about depth, I do a punch biopsy instead, but that would get sent to pathology, be checked underneath a microscope, and they would be able to render a conclusion and let me know what it is so I can determine what the next course of treatment would be. Usually it takes about a week with us. Some places are a little longer, some places are shorter. And I bring the patient back and we discuss the pathology typically, unless it's nothing. If it's benign, we typically don't call them back, but we drop it in their chart so they can have a look on their patient portal. If it's something that requires an extra surgery, we call them, explain that to them, have them come in, have them bring family if it's a bad diagnosis so that we can have somebody making sure we have plenty of ears listening. And we go from there. If it's a squamous cell, if it's a basal cell or melanoma, we discuss the surgery, whether or not it's an area for most criteria, most surgery, like on the face or skin sparing area, like the hands or feet or genitalia. We tell patients that would be a most surgeon who can do the surgery. If it's not, then generally I can actually do the surgery. If it's a melanoma or something more than an in situ melanoma, we coordinate that with oncology, typically with a patient. And we send them to the appropriate locations for managing oncology as well. They can actually do a sentinel lymph node biopsy and remove the lesion at the same time, which is in the patient's best interest. Would that be depending upon the stage of what you find? So bits of melanoma, by definition, it's more than 0.75 millimeters deep. 
as opposed to in situ is superficial. And that's something with wide margins I can take off myself depending on where it's located and if I'm comfortable doing that area. But if it's melanoma, then it's staged and we would kind of gauge risk and depending on looking at mitotic figures and all this, all the information that they provide for us in the pathology. But generally, sentinel lymph node biopsy can still be done if there's a concern. And oncology typically does a surgery on that as well. Okay. Can you describe to our listeners what Mohs surgery is? Sure. Mohs micrographic surgery. So a while ago, and I know someone's going to hear this and be angry that I don't remember the exact year and date. <laughs> there was, I think he was a general surgeon and he was doing a kind of technique that was a skin sparing surgery that involved taking small pieces of skin around a lesion or something that was suspicious and then in real time marking it into quadrants and different pigments and then checking it under the microscope and then determining the limits of where the skin cancer is microscopically. So while the patient's waiting in real time, determine where the skin cancer is on the specimen, you have a body map that coordinates it back to where you took off the spot on the body. And then you're able to remove, for example, more skin off the red quadrant that corresponds to the red quadrant on the patient's skin. And then you're able to really have excellent clearance because down to the cell, you're removing all the skin cancer that you can see there. So really, you're taking a little bit at a time, looking at under the scope and getting more tissue if you need it and leaving the healthy tissue, right? Right. And so most surgeons are board certified dermatologists that do somewhere of like 18 to 20 month fellowships that involve doing that in addition to other things. And also they're trained to close those lesions too, like flaps, grabs, plastics, closures, and that kind of thing. Awesome. Well, I feel like we've covered a lot. What else? Uh, what have we missed? Is there anything else you can think of? No, I, we covered everything. I've talked about all the prevention, the importance of checking yourself as well. I think we covered a lot. You mentioned some support groups for individuals diagnosed with cancer. Can you mention a few of those? Sure. Besides the typical Facebook groups, there's the American Academy of Dermatology, the Skin Cancer Society. Those are the two big ones that come to mind. There's probably dozens of other local groups, local chapters, Facebook groups. There's Facebook groups for all types of issues as well, like in your local region, for example. But the AAD, the American Academy of Dermatology, and the Skin Cancer Society also is very helpful to be able to find resources, get definitions, get names of physicians in your local area who can help and know about certain prognoses and what things are and what things are. Got it. I feel like I've heard of Impact Melanoma, and I think they do some fundraising and research as well. So if anybody's diagnosed with that, they could try to get involved in that way too. I don't know if you've heard of that one. Actually, yes. Thank you. Yeah. So if someone's in our area and wants to find you, how can they find you or how can they work with you? Sure. Absolutely. So I have a number that patients can text me at and a website. So the number is 941-500-4816. And it goes right to my cell phone. I text the patient directly. It's a very personal experience. And also I have my website, which is www.patriotdermatology.com. Patients can make their own appointments and request appointments to the registration form if they want. We do, like I said, a lot of telehealth. So patients on that registration form can even upload pictures of their lesions or their spots that they're worried about. And you know, I'm able to, if I can, if I'm able to do so, I can render a diagnosis and help them out. For mobile, it's the same. 
except that would be in the Sarasota area and made by appointment only. Awesome. Well, we will put all that information in the show notes. Dr. Kupetsky, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. And I hope everybody will tune in next week to hear what we've got. Take care. Thank you so much for having me. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Get Healthy Tampa Bay podcast sponsored by Clearwater Family Medicine and Allergy. Please remember to like and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app and share this episode with your family and friends. We would also love it if you took the time to rate and review us on iTunes. See you next week.